0: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Brian P. Copenhaver, Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and History at UCLA. His new book, Magic in Western Culture, is just out from Cambridge University Press. Belief in magic was pervasive in Greco-Roman times, persisted through the Renaissance, and then fell off the map of intellectual respectability in the Enlightenment. What happened? Why did it become embarrassing for Isaac Newton to have sought the Philosopher's Stone and for Robert Boyle to have urged the British Parliament to repeal a ban on transmuting base metals into silver and gold. In his new book, Copenhagen shows that for millennia, magic was taken seriously by the learned classes, sustained by a philosophical foundation drawn from Plato, Aristotle, and the Stoics. In this fascinating account of the historical conceptual framework of magic, Copenhagen explains the difference between good and bad magic, why Catholic Church Fathers endorsed some magical beliefs, but drew the line at amulets and talismans. And how the rise of mechanistic philosophy transformed magic from being reputable to being a joke. Let's listen to the interview. Hello, Brian Copenhaver. Are you there?
1: I'm here, Carrie. How are you?
0: Hi. Uh, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Great, thank you. Um, I'm really excited to be talking about your book, Magic in Western Culture, From Antiquity to the Enlightenment. Um, It's an amazing book filled with all kinds of strange and wonderful facts, as one can imagine, but it also, you know, argues, makes a very interesting argument about the role of magic uh, for millennia um, and the way it sort of became, you know, turned into... um, a conceptual framework that was, you know, basically became embarrassing uh, to intellectuals, as opposed to its status for thousands of years. So it's a it's a very interesting take on um, on the practice of magic, uh, and um, so let's before we before we get to the actual uh, content of the book, maybe say a word about you know, how you came to philosophy and then to the the area of philosophy that you work in um, and, and to the writing of this book in particular.
1: Sure. I'm, 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 a lot of my education what came to me from the, the Jesuits um, and in those days that meant that it that the core of that education was scholastic philosophy, um, Aristotelianism of a certain kind. <clears throat> and No matter what uh, my major would have been, whether it was history or physics or business or whatever else, everybody who was in this little Jesuit college did that. So um, um, from a very early age, um, this was how I was taught. And as a consequence of that, I came into my higher education curious about certain things to which it was possible to find the answers um, uh, in that world. So when I started, I thought of myself mainly as doing history of science and medicine, um, and uh, uh, decided to work on a character, a fairly obscure character, a French physician who lived in the 16th century, whose name was Samuel Champier. And um, uh, in order to figure out what his um, uh, um, contributions were as a as a physician. I also had to um, pick up on his philosophical background, and um, that meant, um, again, back in the world of scholastic Aristotelianism. Um, Turned out, um, um, it's something I didn't really know when I started, that Champier wrote a great deal about um, magic, witchcraft, astrology, demonology, things like that. And so since I was writing my thesis about this, I had to figure all that out or try to. And that caused me to raise eventually what I came to call the Newton question, which goes basically like this. Um, By the time Newton died in 1727, um, magic had become completely disreputable for people like Newton. That is to say, um, for upstanding, celebrated intellectuals, people like him and Boyle and John Locke and Thomas Hobbes and people like that, right? Right. Um, that was that had happened by 1727, um, and in Newton's case, uh, we know we we can see it happening um, quite concretely because we know now that Newton spent about half his waking life as an adult. Working on alchemy, but when he died in 1727, that information was suppressed, Um, and it wasn't really uncovered until after World War II. Um, So that's that was the situation as of 1727. If you go back to um, uh, you you go backward by a couple of centuries, say to around the year 1500. And you find another prominent intellectual of Newton's stature, a philosopher Marsilio Ficino, and you look at what people wrote about him when he died. He died in 1499. What you find is they're not at all embarrassed. In fact, they're rather proud of, of what Ficino did as an expert on magic. So, what happened in that in the intervening two centuries? Um, what came to uh, what 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 hap- what caused? the situation to be so dramatically different in Newton's day than it was in Ficino's day. Eventually after um, um, a long time, what occurred to me is that the foundations of belief in magic among well-educated intellectuals around the year 1500, that those foundations were philosophical foundations And somewhat more surprising that those philosophical foundations were Aristotelian predominantly, not uniquely. It was a kind of eclectic Aristotelianism, but um, that turned out to be the answer. So that by the time Newton came along, those foundations had been at first eroded and then destroyed. They didn't exist anymore. Um, So that there was no place to stand as a prominent intellectual in Newton's day. If you wanted to assert philosophical reasons for the for such beliefs, you couldn't do that anymore. Um, so that was basically the answer.
0: Hmm. So, um, uh, so let's let's go back first of all to just to place the uh, the overall discussion in in somewhat concrete terms. What what kind of can you give us some examples of the magic uh, uh, the magical practices and or beliefs? Um, that that we have in mind here that we're talking about?
1: Well, a major claim of my project is that magic has no essence. Um, it doesn't have a definition. Um, and by the way, I have the same view about religion. Um, so that in order to, uh, to talk about magic, we can, we, there are phenomena out there that we can see, right? Um, um, and we can see that, we can see that magic is something that gets condemned from the perspective of Judeo-Christian religion. So you might imagine that there's this, uh, there's this, this, um, um, large cluster of beliefs and practices and reasons for those beliefs and practices. And, <clears throat> in 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 some from some perspectives that's called religion from some perspectives that's called magic. It's hard to say what it is essentially because quite frankly i don't think it is anything um, um, essentially
0: mm-hmm.
1: what's what pops up all the time however on on both ends of this spectrum the the magical and the religious end is that we see um, a lot of attention paid to unusual effects of causes which are hard to locate. So that, for example, in the domain of religion, water gets turned into wine, the dead get raised, the blind get healed, etc. And in some circumstances, um, um, people who are interested in those things call them religion. Um, The same things in other circumstances are called magic, and sometimes by the same people. Um, And the difference seems to be that one, um, 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 in, in one domain, the phenomena occur without permission and outside of a certain kind of jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but in another domain, the phenomena occur with permission and under a certain jurisdiction. And that seems to be the distinction. So it doesn't have to, it's not as if you can go out in the world and find Um, instances of, 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 of magic in the way that you could find, let's say tricycles, um, or, um, triangles, um, or, um, uh, any artificial or, or natural object for which perhaps you could, if you worked very hard at it, maybe construct, um, 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 a definition or at least a pretty good description that's very, very difficult to do, both for magic and for religion, I think
0: um okay so um uh, so the Newton question right um that magic became disreputable um you're tracing this to the change in the philosophical foundations of that justified belief um, Let's go back to when it was reputable um so in the beginning, uh, this is sort of starting in. Chapter Two, although um, uh, it is stated in various ways throughout your book, um, who were the original sort of magi or, or magic uh, practitioners? Um, what what did they believe? What how did it start?
1: Well, if we focus on the on the name, the word, the the people called that, and, and let's just use the expression magi or in Greek magoi. Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, we know that the word behind that was a Persian word, and it was a word used in Persian to, uh, as a as an ethnic description by Persians of themselves, um, not all of themselves, but a group of them, maybe something like a tribe. Um, and then there was a war, um, the, the great the great Persian wars between um, uh, between Persia and Greece. The uh, Persians very very nearly destroyed. Um, Greece, but didn't. Um, They were eventually repulsed. But in the process, the Greeks came to, um, um, in one way, um, have a great deal of respect for the Persians as an enemy who might have been able to destroy them. On the other hand, the Greeks came to fear and loathe the Persians as an enemy who very nearly destroyed them. And um, they picked up this word, um, Magoi, as it, atta- it was, as it was attached by the Persians themselves to a tribe. And um, the Greeks wrote um, um, some things about the religious practices of those people. And then um, when they, when they um, began to... Extrapolate this in their literature, particularly in in their um, in their dramatic literature there's a very famous play um, by Aeschylus called the Persians, which is um, the it's the Greek nightmare about the about the Persian invaders and their their religion is presented as something terrible, something exotic um, but there's nothing very specific about it um, because the Greeks didn't really know that much about Persian religion. They were just these bad people, um, 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 the, the Magoi, who were um, a subset of bad people, the Persians, and the Greeks didn't like them. Um, it, 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 it's, at moments, it doesn't come down to much more than that.
0: Huh. So, um, uh, but from this, from this rather sort of vague, you know, anti-Persian. Response. Um, uh, it became. It turned into eventually a uh, uh, Neoplatonically based uh, set of beliefs, I suppose. Um, uh, yeah. That was synthesized by various of the of the neoplatonists and Plotinus, and, uh, Proclus. I mean, this is. Prior to Ficino, right? Um, so could you yeah. could you you know say something about that, the 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 transformation there from a kind of a vague you know there are these bad people magoi um, into um, something that that became a sort of respectable belief system with you know distinctions as you you know a various source between the different sorts of magic and and so forth.
1: Yeah, the 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 the, the Greeks actually knew very little about the Persians or, or and in, in any dimension, whether you want to think of it as culture or, or religion. Where they knew most about the Persians, of course, was as soldiers. They knew about their armies, and they knew a little bit about the politics, but not much else. They weren't completely um, um, without information. They knew a little bit about the Persian religion. And What we can tell that the Greeks knew about the Persian religion was that it was a kind of a dualism, Um, um, a very, very stark kind of dualism where, um, for all practical purposes, there were two gods operating. One was a god of goodness and light, and the other was a god of darkness and evil. And the story of everything, the story of the universe, you could say the history of the universe, was Contest between these two gods. Ultimately, the good god wins, but it's a struggle, and the struggle takes place in what we would call the world or the cosmos. And when the Greeks talked about this, in, in again, in very very broad terms, um, nothing very very exact, they they um, um, treated it as if there is if the cosmo the cosmological dimension of Persian religion was pretty much the same as theirs. They assumed that everybody had basically the same sort of cosmology. Later, um, so that, all this was going on in the, in the, in the fifth and, and, and fourth centuries um, um, uh, before the common era. Later, um, the beginning in, in the um, third century um, uh, um, um, of the common era after Plotinus Founded what we call the, the Neoplatonic school, his, his successors, um, who were first Porphyry and, Ye- and then Iamblichus and Synesius, and eventually Proclus, his, his successors thought that they had access to an original scripture of the Persian religion, um, and that religion was called uh, that scripture was called the Chaldean Oracles. And the thought was that it had been written by the great prophet of the Persian religion who was was called Zoroaster. Um, That was, that's what the Neoplatonists thought. And they picked this piece of writing up, which survived for them only in fragments. They didn't really have the whole thing. And they interpreted those fragments in their usual way um, as illuminated, according to them by a blend of Platonism with Aristotelianism. We ordinarily think of the Neoplatonists, given their name, Neoplatonists, as Platonists. Mm-hmm. But that's a little that's a little simple. They're actually eclectic um, Platonists who are quite interested in Aristotelianism. In fact, it would be just as accurate to think of them as eclectic Aristotelians who are very interested in Platonism. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and that's it's it's in that framework that they read these um 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 these this, these fragments of a of a of an original Zoroastrian scripture and interpreted it um, in order to support not just their views about magic which they did but their 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 general um, metaphysical and 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 theological views.
0: So, could you could you give an example of of a neoplatonic or neo-aristotelian whatever you know however you want to to describe it more precisely um mm-hmm. how, how that sort of uh metaphysical foundation is revealed in some sort of metaphysical sorry some sort of magical um uh belief or distinction or or some sort of uh you know particular practice that was sure. you know was was uh, as As you put it before was was had permission within that system as opposed to something that say did not have permission within that system
1: yeah so um, um a good example would be um, the uh, uh, the idea of chains um or series the, the Greeks the Greeks were the greek words being um um, Sarah um, for series and Toxis for chain. So the idea is you've got a chain which has a bunch of links in it, and the chain goes from up above to down below. That's the basic. That's the basic metaphor. Um, the 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 metaphysical use that the Neoplatonists made of their of that image was to overcome what for them was a very very. Um, um, difficult problem of transcendence. The 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 Neoplatonic um, divinity um, at, at, the, at the summit of, of things um, had was described with three names. One uh, one name was the One, um, another name was Mind, and the third name was soul. If this sounds suspiciously trinitarian, it is. <laughs> and In fact, from um, um, it's from the Platonism that Christians like Augustine um, took a lot of their trinitarian metaphysics. So the 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 one um, mind and soul are uh, are the highest. That's the highest divinity there is, and at the very summit of it, the one is so transcendent, is so far removed from anything known or knowable to us, that there's nothing at all that can be said about it. Period. All that we can say is the one. We can make no assertions about it. We can make uh, we, well, we can't deny anything of it. All we can say is the one. We can begin to talk about divinity in, in more explicit, concrete terms, only when we come to the next level, which is mind, and then to the next level, which is soul. Um, but at those levels, one mind and soul, we're still way off at the summit of things and utterly beyond anything that we know. We are down here, not just at the center of the universe. We're also at the bottom of the universe. One might say we're, we're in the, the basement of the universe. Mm-hmm. and It's a mess. Uh, Um, things that when anything that happens down here happens badly because it happens, um, embedded in matter. Um, um, some of the, you know, some of the famous maxims for in ancient philosophy for the, for the way that the, 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 uh, that soul or mind is connected to body expresses this idea, this loathing of matter. Um, people talk about the body being a cage for the soul. About they talk about it's being a prison um, um, for the soul. They talk about the soul being chained to a corpse. Um, that's the body. Um, so that's how things are down here, and it's a it's a mess. It's 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 both metaphysically and physically the problem of evil in the worst possible state that you can imagine. It. So the pro- so so the issue becomes. How do we get all that divinity up there, which is in some way causally responsible for this mess down here? How do we get them connected, right? Um, um, and the solution to the to the connection is to is to um, um, posit lots of intermediation. So in between um, one mind soul up there and our terrestrial mess. Down here, the Neoplatonists posit a whole hierarchy of intermediate divinities, and what they do, among other things, well, they do. Two, they have two jobs. Um, one main job is to be um, um, is to be the the, the barrier, the, the the huge distance, right, that protects divinity from the mess down here. Right. That's one job. The other job is to make the connection between those two things to see to it that the divine causality flows down and can be um, analyzed as, um, uh, as producing the systems of cause and effect, which we see happening every day in front of us um, 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 in our lives down here. So in between what you've got is you've got a hierarchy, and that hierarchy, as it gets closer and closer to the bottom or the center, is increasingly material and decreasingly divine, and as it goes up, it's increasingly divine and decreasingly material. Everything in between, from from a metaphysical point of view, is thought of as chains or series. And their their role in magic basically works like this. Um, Suppose um, you've got some uh, you, you've you got some disease um, which can be um, helped by the power of certain stars, right? And we'll say the stars in this case um, happen to be the constellation Scorpio. Well, how am I going to get in touch with those stars, which themselves are gods, and they're a long way away. They're not as far away as the one-minded soul, but they're still... A long way away. How do I bridge that gap? Well, what I do is I get myself connected with a chain or a series whose bottommost um, um, elements or links are scorpions down here, right? The uh-huh. scorpions down here might be actual insects. Um, they're not insects, technically, they are arachnids, um, but they might be a kind of scorpions you would see in the desert in Arizona, or it might be a scorpion carved on a gem. Um or it might be a song about a scorpion, or it might be a scorpion woven into a piece of clothing. I mean, it might be anything, right? And then there's a there's a there's a chain um or series of scorpions going all the way up. Um until you get um not just to the scorpion in the stars, which is the constellation Scorpio, but to the, the idea of Scorpion, the form of Scorpion in the mind of God. Um, now, that mind of God, of course, is only at the second highest level. That's mind. Um, um, at the very highest level, all we have is the one. And there's nothing that, that can be said about that at all, except that at least by implication, right, if not explicitly, that's where the whole thing starts. Everything in the world, um, the, the, the Neoplatonists see metaphysically as emanation. Um, from the one. The one is um, um, whatever the one is. One thing we can be sure about it um, um, again, not directly but by implication is that it's the best. It's like Plato's form of the good, right? right. Um, um, and it's so good that it's good overflows. And that overflowing, again the metaphor is the metaphor of a spring overflowing. And that's Everything pours down um, from the one into the universe. But it pours down in an orderly way through this hierarchy, this set of chains or series. And then at the bottom end, um, one of the things that we can track about it is its um, um, array of magical effects here um, um, on the the Earth.
0: So... um... The, um, I suppose, I mean, you mentioned Augustine before, and, um, one of the things that you, that you, uh, write in the book is, um, is how the, the Christian or the Catholic fathers, um, endorsed magic, or at least some aspects of it, um, uh, and and then not others. So, uh, for example, that uh, some sort of herbal remedies or, or ways of preparing things were okay, but uh, as you put it, um, not you know, amulets and talismans were definitely not okay. And uh, you said, you know, Thomas Aquinas takes a similar hard line on amulets and talismans. Um, so, um, how how did how did they? Church fathers kind of you know pick and choose between the different magical doctrines in order to make them cohere with the Christian doctrines, and you know, thereby justify, say, transubstantiation, uh, but not you know other uses of of magical devices.
1: So the the, the picking and choosing um, um uh, the, the the picking and choosing that's that's theoretically interesting for understanding um, um, magic happened most happened uh, most of it happened later, not in the era of the church fathers, but later on, for example, Ficino did a lot of it, right. okay. A lot of the picking and choosing. But um, um, earlier in the in the in the age of Augustine and the church fathers, um, there was certainly a lot of worry about um, um, about magic, about what its religious status might be, whether it was something that the, um, uh, the Christians could approve of or not. And Augustine had a, um, a test which um, uh, actually became quite influential. It was still important for Aquinas. It was still important for um, uh, Ficino centuries later. And it turns to a, to, a, to, a, to a certain extent on a distinction between an amulet and a talisman. Now, it's a little tricky because if you're reading the original texts in, in Greek or Latin, um, the terminology isn't stable. So, um, uh, so to a certain extent, we have to sort of stipulate that, a, that an amulet is um, uh, a, let's say, a piece of, it's a piece, small piece of something hard like a um, um like a stone and um that stone um uh might be somebody's birthstone right might be um 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 might be some very um um beautiful gem whose 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 appearance makes it seem mysterious and and uh um and interesting um that stone um when worn on the body right um uh was thought to have what we would call therapeutic effects. You know, in fact, if you if you go back and you read the standard um, um, manuals of pharmacy um, from um, antiquity or the or the Middle Ages, you'll see listed in the pharmacopeia you'll see not just plants but also stones, gems, and thought to have therapeutic effects. So if I take one of these, one of these, um, um, pieces of these, one of these little stones, and I wear it around my neck as a kind of necklace, right? Um, then I might be doing that, uh, because I think it's something pretty, right? But I also might be doing it because I think it's going to heal me. And if it heals me, the, 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 the healing that goes on might be, um, the result of, um, causes and effects which are entirely impersonal. Um, The we the kinds of things that we might call physical or chemical um, um, activity um, or maybe biochemical um, activity and an amulet might be thought of in those terms. A talisman um, on the other hand would be an amulet that has signs on it Um, um, and some of those signs very very obviously could only be meant as a vehicle uh, as vehicles for communication between one mind and another, so if the signs are words, and if the word and even worse, if the words make up phrases or statements or something, then obviously those are being or not obviously presumably those are being said to somebody and they're being said by somebody. So there's a communication between persons. One person is the person who makes the talisman, another person is the person who wears the talisman. But the, uh, the, 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 uh, another crucial person is the angel or demon to whom the message is addressed. Um, that's what makes talismans dangerous, that unlike amulets, because they have signs on them, those signs can be communications with other minds which have to belong to persons. The reason that's a problem is because that kind of communication communication with, let's say, angels or saints or um, um, uh, even God, right? The, that kind of communication is completely within the jurisdiction of the church.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Only the church can authenticate and legitimate that kind of communication. If it's done outside the church's jurisdiction, then it's wrong. Uh, it's forbidden. That's why talismans are a problem. The really interesting cases um, um, are the intermediate cases. So if you take an intermediate case of a talisman that has a sign on it, suppose the sign um, is a nonverbal sign. So suppose the sign is a picture of a scorpion. Right. What's that communicating with? Well, one way to read it is to see it as a a kind of switch, which if it's in the right position at the right time, um, um, under the right conditions. What it does is it opens up one of these channels, right? Like the scorpions that go from down here to up there, mm-hmm. opens up that Taxis or that Sarah in the way that we might throw on a, an electric switch. And that doesn't seem very personal at all. um, um So that's one end of the spectrum of of ambiguity. The other end of the spectrum of ambiguity is the amulet itself. If I hang um, um, an amulet around my neck, now again, I'm talking about just the stone. It doesn't have any marks on it at all, no signs, not even even nonverbal signs. According to Augustine, if I do that and what happens is that indeed it works, Um, um, the the therapeutic effect happens, and this therapeutic effect is otherwise hard to account for. It's not one that would ordinarily happen if I go out and eat some um, um, prunes or some rhubarb or some other um, well-known plant that everybody uses all the time. If it's an odd effect, then, says Augustine, there's there's a good chance that what's going on is that that amulet is a tacit message to a demon? It's a tacit request to ask the demon to help me, and therefore I shouldn't do it. It's just too dangerous. Um, so the the interesting cases are the ambiguous cases at the at the margin. In in all in all four cases, both the clear ones and the at both ends and the ambiguous ambiguous ones in the middle. The um, the um, uh, the there, there's a there's a there's a well worked out system which progressively over the centuries it's initially stated by Augustine that it's developed more strongly in the 13th century by Aquinas and then elaborated even more by Ficino in the late 15th century there's a there's a well-formed theory that all this fits into. Likewise there's a well-formed theory that applies to the, the central sacramental act of the Christian religion, um, which is the, um, the sacrifice of the mass, where, um, when the priest says certain words, hoc est anum corpus meum, this is my body, um, and then says, this is my, this is my blood, the chalice of the New Testament, et cetera, et cetera. When the priest says those words, um, what happens according to the doctrine is that what looks like Wine um, and bread on the altar become God's um, flesh and blood. And it happens because those words are said by that priest under certain conditions. Um, well, there's a theory, um, that, a theory that Descartes was still quite interested in in the early 17th century, which explains how this could possibly be. Um, it's, it's a long, complicated thing, but just to, um, um, to, to give it a name and say a little bit about it, it's a theory grounded in, in um, um, hylomorph, hylomorphic metaphysics, which first of all makes a distinction between substances and, and the qualities that adhere in them, and then second makes a distinction between distinctions among certain kinds of qualities, ordinary qualities, the ones we encounter every day are qualities like hot, cold, wet, and dry, and they be, they belong to matter as its ordinary, under, ordinarily understood, material objects, which are made of hot, which are made of earth, air, fire, and water. So those four qualities, in um, pairs, attach to. Um, um, the four elements, the four elements constitute everything. And that gives us the ordinary qualities that we encounter every day. Those qualities, because we encounter them by way of sensation and perception are called manifest qualities. But there are other qualities, which are also quite powerful that aren't manifest Um, 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 because we don't sense them. We don't perceive them. We know they're there, well, how do we know they're there? Well, we see their effects. And how do we know their effects are, are the effects of qualities of a certain kind called hidden qualities or occult? That's all that the word occult really means in this context. It just means hidden, not that mm-hmm. effects. Um, how do we know they're there? Well, because the theory tells us so. And what's the theory? The theory is, um, the theory is metaphysical hylomorphism, right? Um, um, pretty, you know, pretty grounded in in a certain view of Aristotle's metaphysics which was developed mainly in the um, in the 13th century. That theory um, um, which explains how it can possibly be that the bread and wine on the altar which were on the altar are no longer bread and wine. They're actually God's body and blood. Not symbolically, but really. How can that possibly be? They look like bread and wine, but they're not bread and wine. Well, the theory that explains that depends on the ability to make a distinction, a metaphysical distinction between a substance and its qualities, such that under some conditions, the qualities are detachable from the substance. That same theory, um, um, uh, the hylomorphic uh, metaphysics of qualities, that same theory underwrote um, um, the um, um, uh the accounts of ver- various kinds of magical effects. Uh, the most striking, mag- the, stru- the most striking magical effects, um, um, and there are lots and lots and lots of cases of them. Um, uh, um, commented on by philosophers over the centuries, the most striking <clears throat> effects are what we are, are um, uh, effects of action at a distance. So that, what's action at a distance? Well. That a very ordinary case of action at a distance that um, um, that we see uh, in our in our lives, we're in very ordinary ways, and we have a, a pretty good account of it in our physics, is what happens when you bring a magnet near some iron filings. If you bring the magnet close enough, the close enough, the iron filings are going to do a strange thing. They're going to sort of leap up and attach themselves to the magnet. So. In Ficino's day, uh, people like him had seen this phenomenon quite frequently. They had utterly no way, in physical terms, um, in our physical terms, to account for it. They had no concept of what we would call magnetism, no concept of electricity. But they were able to uh, they, they were able to account for it by attributing to the magnet a certain kind of quality. What kind of quality? Well, you can't perceive or sense magnetism. You can sense or perceive its effect, but you can't perceive the quality. That quality, hence, is called um, a hidden quality or an occult quality.
0: Right.
1: You also can't perceive or um, uh, sense its cause. What is its cause? Well, its cause is also something not sensible, not perceived, hence hidden it's the what came to be called the whole substance of the object so you can see the you can you know you pick up the magnet you can feel its weight you can you can touch it you can it might be a smooth magnet or a or a or a or a not smooth magnet you can do all those things that that involve sensation but you're never actually coming into sensory contact or perceptual contact contact with the substance the substance then makes a handy Um, 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 vehicle for these qualities, which are also insensible and unperceived. And of course, both the substance and the qualities have not just a marginal place, but they have a central place, a prominent place in the, in the very, at the very core of the Aristotelian account of physical change. It's, you know, it's how the whole, it's how the physics works. Hmm. So the, the theory, the theorizing about, about magic, about magical qualities wasn't something at the um, um, at the margin of, of of philosophical understanding. It was right at the core, um, and it was not only at the core physically and metaphysically. It was also at the core in religious and moral terms, because the same theory was used to explain things like how does the priest turn, um, um, or how does the priest how does how does it come about that mm-hmm. the the wine and and uh, Read on the altar become God's flesh and blood.
0: Right, right. Now it's interesting, and you know some of the things that you just mentioned, like you know, occult just meant you know not observable, not not experienced. Um, And the it's a little too
1: strong. I mean, it it wasn't as if any kind of theory of sensation or perception was being expressed. I mean, the, the basic word just means hidden. Yeah. So that, so that, and there are a lot of ways you could be hidden. I mean, you could, I can, you know, if I if I take um, $5 from you and put it under a seat cushion, it doesn't make it imperceptible.
0: Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, but I, I guess, because yes. you, know, you also mentioned the uh, the words that the priest, you know, um, right. intones, you know, the Hulk est corpus right. meum, right. and how, I think in, in the book you mentioned how that became sort of corrupted into hocus pocus
1: right people aren't really too sure about that. there's oh, okay here, here's what's certainly true that by the late 17th century there was a, a there was an archbishop of canterbury in the the english church the head of the english church um, who um in a particularly vitriolic um, um, tirade against Catholics was willing to say that that's where it came from. Okay. Um, by that time, that was in the late 16, that was like 1680, 1690. I mean, we doing, we see the t- term being used about a hundred years before that. Nobody's really sure when it first emerged mm-hmm. whether that's what, whether it was a pun on Hawke Stane and Corpus Man. Certainly sounds like it, but yeah. nobody's really sure
0: right but it's, it certainly makes a, a a good story and um Great story. yeah and i mean even if it isn't uh if it's perhaps apocryphal or or something it uh just the way it's it, it both the use of hocus pocus and even occult nowadays is sort of um you know the way we today think of these terms and their relation to magic is is um kind of Brings makes very clear the the disrepute that now magic is thought to have, um, whereas before to, to call something a cult, um, you know was was absolutely you know central as you just put it to the whole metaphysical picture that justified you know the beliefs. Um You mentioned Ficino, I mean, and uh, Marsilio Ficino, and he. Plays a, an enormous role in in the book and and in the um, uh, the elaboration of the of the philosophical foundations of, of magic. Um, can you say something about his role and, and his rather eclectic way of of justifying magic?
1: Sure. Um, so what Pacino did was to create a grand synthesis of magical theory, um, and to do it so effectively that for the next um, couple of hundred years. He, he published the book in which he did this in, in uh, 1489. And that book um, was still being printed in the late 17th century in the, when, when Boyle and Locke were young, um, the late 17th century. Um, so, it was enormously influential, and it was the it was far and away the most serious effort ever made to state um, um, in full and explicit terms a philosophical theory of magic. And he he did that on the basis of a lot of things that had gone before him. Um, it, were it not for um, uh, Augustine and. Albertus Magnus and Thomas Aquinas and Plotinus and Proclus and and lots of others on whom Ficino drew, then he wouldn't have had anything to synthesize. But by the time he came along, there was actually quite a lot um, to synthesize. And what made the most difference um, in terms of, of innovation Between his situation and let's say that of Aquinas or Albertus in the 13th century was that Ficino um, was the great um, um, Hellenist of his age. He was the one of the top five or 10 um, most skilled readers and experts on Greek and and Greek literature and language in the late 15th century in, uh, in Western Europe and so he was able to read, um, Greek manuscripts at, in a way that nobody had been able to do in the West for a long time, since before the time, um, of Augustine. Because of that, he was able actually to get into the texts and actually in some cases to translate them and write commentaries on them into the texts of, of Plotinus and, and, uh, Iamblichus and Synaceus and Porphyry and Proclus. Um, that was going on. He was doing that in the in the in the same enormous project, uh, which took his whole life, that produced the first complete translation of Plato's dialogues into a language that Western Europeans can use. Could use before Pacino published the, the dialogues in 1486. Um, uh, a few of them had been translated earlier in the 15th century. In the Middle Ages, only two of them. Um, had been translated, the meaning of the Phaedo, and nobody read them, right? So Plato was pretty much completely absent um, um, from the the philosophical arena until the 15th century. And then all of Ficino, all of Plato came on stage only with Ficino's um, uh, famous translation in 1486. In the same same framework, uh, in which he was doing that, he also did all of this enormously creative work on the Neoplatonists. He translated uh, Plotinus, he translated Proclus, he translated lots of others, uh, and again wrote commentaries on. It. So that's the basic. That was his life's work. That's what he did. And in that uh, in that framework, as far as magic is concerned, what he did was to synthesize that Neoplatonism with two other things. One was scholastic Aristotelianism and the other was with also a little Stoicism. Hmm. Um, The scholastic Aristotelianism, he got mainly, although not uniquely from Aquinas, also to a certain extent from Albertus. And um, it's, it's most important element was the hylomorphic metaphysics of substance and qualities that I just mentioned. Um, um, That's what enabled him to come up with his account of occult qualities, particularly as they were effective in medicine, because that was his—that—that's what—that his, was his professional role. He was a physician. He was also a priest, but he was a very, very famous physician. So, from the scholastic Aristotelians, he takes the hylomorphic metaphysics of, of, of substance and qualities. Then, from the Neoplatonists, he takes takes a lot of things, but mainly what he takes. Is this concept of chains or series binding the whole cosmos together metaphysically and accounting and and thereby accounting for the strange physical effects that we see all around us on on, um, in our daily lives, effects like magnetism, which we can't explain. Um, um, How to explain them? Well, one way is occult qualities. Another way is the, the metaphysics of series and chains from the Neoplatonists. and then finally, as a physician, he had um, um, he had access to uh, another key doctrine, which came uh, whose, whose roots are basically Stoic, and it's the it's the idea of what's called pneuma in Greek or spiritus in Latin, sometimes spirit in English, although spirit's a funny word for it because. The the, the 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 substance in question is never completely non-material. Um, um, it's always slightly material or slightly body, uh, slightly embodied. So it's either a um, 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 a very very um, uh, um, a, a, a mostly dematerialized bodily substance, or it's a very lightly embodied. Spiritual substance, so it's meant to be right there at the margin, huh. and its its marginal character is what makes it a communicator. It's what makes it able to bridge the what we would call the mind body gap. Huh. Um, the theory of the soul, the psychology um, involved in it, is that the the soul is um, is the soul has levels. Uh, so we're familiar with the concept of of faculty psychology. This is kind of a faculty psychology, but with a with its own little geography, where there's a higher soul and a lower soul. And as you come down lower in the soul, just as when you come down lower in the universe, things get more and more materialized. They get more and more embodied. So that when you get to the very bottom end of the soul, where things like imagination go on, in that compartment of the soul, then you've got, um, 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 because spiritus or pneuma is its vehicle there, you've got the occasion for contact, um, um, between mind and body. So the, the theory of panoima or spiritus from the Stoics, the theory of occult qualities, um, from Hylomorphic scholastic metaphysics, the theory of chains or series from the Neoplatonists Gino picks all that up and synthesizes it into a grand theory of magic, which is quite explicitly a philosophical theory. Um, And it, 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 it held the, um, it held the stage, as you say, for the next couple of next couple of centuries until the whole thing fell apart. And when the whole thing fell apart, that happened not because of its Neoplatonic um, component, um, but because of its uh, Aristotelian component. In other words, when the, when, the, when the theory was derided, mocked, attacked, repudiated, so on and so forth, in the 17th century by Galileo, Descartes, and their many successors and imitators, what, the attack that they mounted wasn't against Neoplatonism. They didn't care about Neoplatonism. Um, why? Well, because it wasn't taught in the universities. Hmm. Um, what they, I That's an exaggeration. It wasn't much taught in the universities. What was still um, uh, enormously widely taught in the universities was scholastic Aristotelianism. And that's that's the prime target of Descartes. It's also the prime target of Galileo. And it remains the prime target for decades and decades after them. Um, um, So it was that's the piece of Ficino's synthesis, which was blown up in the 17th century and then caused the whole structure to fall.
0: Yeah so I mean we're we're getting close to um the end but I I did uh want to ask about you know how how it did fall apart I mean you uh Newton's dabbling or or actually not just dabbling but you know um uh intense interest in in alchemy and in in searching for the philosopher's stone that's a lot of people know about that even if it wasn't um Broadly advertised. Um, I didn't know that that Boyle, as you put it, had had um, worked to get the the parliament uh, to repeal a ban on converting base metals into silver and gold, which kind of presupposes that you can do this. Right. Um, I mean, that that in itself is is kind of mind boggling. so so yeah could you say you know what what happened that made it like just uh you know just embarrassing that leading intellectuals could possibly think that um that magic was a you know serious um and seriously grounded uh belief system
1: Yeah um um the what what made it Um, 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 An embarrassment was that it quite explicitly became a joke. That is to say that by the by the late 17th century, um, when um, uh, when either the Cartesian or the Newtonian version of the of, of the new science was high intellectual fashion. If you if you wanted to show that you were a member of that club, that you were hip, that you were progressive, that you were reading the right books and thinking the right thoughts, if you wanted to do that. What one of the ways you one of the things you could do to show that was to make fun of something else. So the most famous case of this is is uh, in Moliere's plays, where um, in one of which um, he. He uh, brings off, I think, the the, the best joke um, on this topic in this period, the best joke about magic, which is this famous line about dormitive about virtue, right? And, and a lot of a lot of fun has been made with that as it, as it should be. But there's not only that. There's a you know, there's a poem, which great famous poem, which isn't much read anymore, by um, Samuel Butler called Hudibras. Um, H u d i b r a s that had about a, about twenty percent of which is this hilarious um, um, send up of of magic and astrology and and witchcraft beliefs and uh, and things like that. So that was the that was the scene by the time in the late 1680s when Newton was writing the Principia. I mean, it, it was it was already like that, and then by the time he died in 1727, it was even more like that. Largely because of his own work. However, if we if we look a little closer, what you'll see is that, as far as um, um, uh, as far as the matter theory is concerned, um, Newton really never fully made up his mind um, um, about this. It, you know, the, 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 the key problem in his physics, of course, is gravity, or and which is a kind and has to be a kind of action at distance as right. he mm-hmm. formulated. Action at a distance is the is the is in physical terms the 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 center of magical action, right? Right. Um, so um, uh, you know what's going on when the when the moon um, uh, pulls the water up and we have tides. What's going up when the iron filings jump up at the magnet? Right. Newton at times once you know works very hard for an account of that. Which we can call a, which we would call a purely mechanical uh, account. It's a, it's an account in terms of contact action. So it, all these things happen because little things bump into little things. And uh, That's ultimately what's, what's going on. But that wasn't always the story he told. Um, throughout his career, one of the ideas that he kept chasing, in um, um, the way that Einstein kept chasing a, you know, a grand unified theory, was uh, it's something he called the ether, and the, the the ether was a descendant of the Stoic pneuma. It had it, it played the same role. It was a connector, right? It it, it 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 got things connected that otherwise wouldn't be connected. In Newton's case, these connections had to operate at two levels. One was in the whole universe in order to sustain interstellar and interplanetary um, gravity. He didn't know about galaxies yet. Uh, but they also, and this comes up in the optics, um, um, uh, where in, in uh, query thirty-one, where he he speculates about his matter theory, this same kind of of, of action. Um, uh, there's you know there's a there's a best-selling book out now which is called Spooky Action in a Distance.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, this is its ancestor, right? Um, um, where 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 Newton posits the same this forces of the same kind operating. Um, um, in what we would call the interparticulate level, you know, between things like atoms and electrons and things like that, that's you know he he was very very seriously thinking about that, and he didn't always think of it in mechanical terms. Um, he sometimes thought of it in explicitly non mechanical terms, um, and and that goes that all that goes back to the Stoic notion of, of pneuma or um, or spiritus. What's even more striking is that. If you think of, of again how things were in his lifetime, um, you know it's true that Boyle and he um, didn't want the law the part uh, they, they tried to get Parliament's law against um, uh, gold making try to get it repealed. Even more striking is that Boyle um, um, wrote a manuscript. The, this is Boyle, the author of the Skeptical Chemist, <laughs> right? That that Robert Boyle wrote something called a dialogue on the converse with angels. And that in that dialogue, what he does is to speculate about the philosopher's stone, not just as a, as a, um, an agent that'll help you turn base metals into gold. He also speculates about the philosopher's stone as a device that you can use to talk to angels. Then this is Robert Boyle, right? Mm -hmm. This is the same Robert Boyle who wrote the skeptical chemist. So the, the, for, you know, for a long time, um, um, for good and understandable reasons, people have had, um, um, this, this progressive view of, of the history of science and the history of philosophy, which, um, um, which kind of makes it go in, in, in one direction. And the, the, you know, the, the, the interesting stuff is the stuff that folk most remembers how we think most resembles how we think now. And we kind of forget about the other stuff. One reason why this story about magic is so hard to understand is that it's so unbelievable because you have, because where where you have to place not only figures like, like, you know, Newton and and Boyle, but also figures like Aristotle um, and Plato and, um, um, and Plotinus and Albertus and Aquinas. When, 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 when we put, Somebody like Ficino um, in in that box. Nobody really cares. That people who teach that, like I do, and I don't know whether you teach history, philosophy, or not. I imagine you do. But the um, um, uh, if you do, um, as you know, the curriculum really doesn't get around to people like Ficino. No, it sure as hell does get around to people like Aquinas um, and, and and Augustine and Albertus um, uh, and Boyle. And Locke um, and Newton, and they're all involved in this story. Um, uh, they're all very much involved in it. But it's a it's a it's a it's a tough story to clarify and and um, um, and 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 um, uh, communicate. Just because people have been either tacitly or explicitly denying it for so long, um, uh, for for centuries
0: so it's a, it, it is a fascinating story and you, you do in your introduction i think you you write a wonderful sentence that um ideal humans ideal humans would go from reflex to reason but real people shuttle between magic and logic and i think um i think a lot of the characters that you talk about in the book um not just newton and boyle they're just uh you know, famous people that we know that we can't quite wrap our heads around what else they did besides physics and chemistry. Um, so it's it's something that, that seems to be characteristic of people, people in general. Um, but we are, unfortunately, I mean, there's a lot more to talk about in the book, but, but we're out of time, and... Um, so I, I just want to close with um, a question about what you uh, are planning to do in the future, and are uh, what what you're working on now. Are you following this up, or are you turning your attention to some other topic entirely?
1: Well, let me thanks, Carrie, and let me mention two things. Um, one is that simultaneously with this book, which was published by Cam- Cambridge, um. um Another one is coming out called "The Book of Magic: From the Antiquity to the Enlightenment," which is Penguin. Um, and it, it's it, what it does is collect the texts which supply the evidence for the other book, um, and uh, to to lay them out in translations um, from Latin and Greek and French and and other languages, translations by me um, for the whole period. There are in the book there are. Um, there are, I think, about 110 of these texts. They're all relatively short, uh, on purpose, mm-hmm. but it, it will give people a, a concrete textual basis for what I'm talking about in the book. But that's already out. It's on the you can. It's on the Amazon website, and it's called the Book of Magic from Antiquity to the Enlightenment, and it's published by Penguin Classics, and it'll it'll, it'll be in paperback soon. Um, the um, the The next big project is about. One of, the, one of the major champions of theorizing about magic in the, in the 15th century, a, a contemporary of Pacino's, his name is Giovanni Pico della Mirandola. Most people have heard of him, but relatively few people know actually what he did. The, the standard mistake about Pico is to see him as what's usually called a Renaissance humanist, and to see him in particular as the author of a speech called The Oration on the Dignity of Man, as to see him as a champion of human dignity and freedom. Mm-hmm. Well, as it turns out, this, he didn't call his speech that, and it's not about human dignity and freedom. Uh, that title was given to it by a later editor who misunderstood it, and uh, the, the speech is really about ascetic mysticism of a certain kind, involving a lot of dependence on uh, 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 Jewish mysticism or, or Kabbalah. So basically it, 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 it rewrites um, um, the, 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 the story of Pico and um, recasts his role in the, in the story of Western culture. Uh, he, he's a person who thought of himself not at all as what we would now call a humanist, but who called himself quite explicitly um, a philosopher. In fact, the word dignity comes up only twice in his famous speech on the, that's given that title, and the dignity that's being talked about isn't human dignity at all. The word that he uses 70, 50, I'm sorry, 70 times in that speech to describe himself um, is philosopher, and he presents himself as a certain, in fact, you could see the speech at sort of as Pico's job description, um, in which he's proclaiming his, his role and his place as a um, as a certain kind of philosopher, actually a scholastic, a late scholastic philosopher. Hmm. So that's my next project.
0: Great. So, well, we we are out of time, but I just want to uh, thank you again for for a fascinating discussion about a, a a really complicated and fascinating topic.
1: I'm very grateful for your thinking of me, Carrie. Thanks very much. I appreciate it.
0: Okay. Bye bye. You've been listening to my interview with Brian P. Copenhaver. We've been talking about his new book, Magic in Western Culture, From Antiquity to the Enlightenment, which is just out from Cambridge University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.